Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good day, I'm Edward Greenspan. Welcome to Policy Speaking. We are three long months into what someone has called an induced coma for the economy. And policymakers have begun to awaken the patient now, but we're still a long way from recovery. The governor of the Bank of Canada has said it will be a bumpy road back. Few have been as hard hit as the Canadian energy sector. Its crisis began earlier than most when Russia and Saudi Arabia tangled over production targets, sparking a collapse in world prices. Few were hurt as badly as Canada's petroleum sector. Here at PPF, we've been working with the Canadian energy sector to find ways to achieve our climate targets in a world in which climate effects are getting worse and to ensure a smooth transition. The mission of our Energy Future Forum is to develop practical measures that help Canada meet or exceed our 2030 emissions targets on the way to a net zero future and that strengthen an innovative economy, deepen shared prosperity and enhance national unity. So we've got uh, quite a few things that we have to get right. Few people know this landscape better than our guest today, Mark Little, the president and CEO of Suncor Energy. Mark is one of the most influential people in the industry and in the policy circles as well. He was recently appointed to the government's Industrial Strategy Council to help figure out how to get the economy moving again. And he will head up discussions about what it takes to have a strong and viable resources sector. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Great to be here with you today, and thanks for having me. Lovely to have you. And uh, I want to take us away from today to start. I want to go back a little bit to Sunday, March 8th. World oil prices fell hard. The Saudis and Russians had been choasting all weekend. The following day, shares in Canadian oil companies would drop 18% in your case, much more than that in the cases of some other companies. Tell me a little bit about that period, that weekend, that Monday as the bottom fell out of oil. Well, do you know, it's interesting because not only was demand starting to decline a little bit at that point, as, as you started to see some of the effects of COVID, though no one had a concept as to just how challenging it was going to get. But one of the things that happens, are we used to OPEC having disagreements and the price going down? Yes. It's just when that happened, no one had, I think at that stage of the game, including Russia and Saudi Arabia, had no idea just how difficult this circumstance would become in a very short period of time. So this isn't an unusual thing for people within the OPEC community to agree, or OPEC plus in this particular case, but this is certainly unprecedented in the context of historical disagreements, that's for sure. Well, I guess in some ways, you know, in 2008, in the Great Recession, we saw demand pummeled. In 2014, we saw an oversupply situation. Here you kind of, as you're saying, had a supply shock and a demand shock hit at the same time. That must have been quite chilling in Calgary. Well, it certainly is, Ed. And the challenge with it is now we, things have stabilized a lot from where we were back when WTI went negative for a day. But in that context, 
the environment, the challenge with it is we have massive crude inventories globally. And so now the question is, is how do we work our way out of this and how do we get these inventories back into line and stabilize this industry? Like I said, it's much better than what it was, but literally every producer on the globe is getting the price signal to bring on production. And so how well we'll do in drawing down these inventories and such as we go forward, that's going to be the challenge. And we think it's going to take some time. And there'll be times where the price is going down because too many people have brought on production and inventories are filling up again. And there'll be times where everybody's being relatively disciplined in the whole process. OPEC plus is actually living up to their commitments and will start draining down inventories. And we've seen both literally in over the last several weeks. I guess demand, global demand was about 101 million barrels a day when this started. When you say that you're seeing some life in that and people are getting signals to bring supply back on on side, is it back up to those kinds of levels? When do you expect we would, if ever, get back to those levels? Well, it's interesting, Ed, because when your back's against the wall, everybody's trying to figure out, do I have more money or do I lose less money by producing the barrel versus not producing the barrel? And crude's down, say, 5% today. And so we're sitting at, call it 38 and change for West Texas Intermediate or Brent's just under $41. Every single oil company and every producer in the world would make more money by producing all of their barrels if they could sell them. The challenge with it is, although demand's improved from where it was, at one point we were off probably something like 30 million barrels a day. And so we were, it was off significantly, 30% of world demand had disappeared. So it's come back, it's a lot stronger today, but we still are off, call it 20 million barrels. So we still have a long ways to go. And yet people would, in theory, if they could sell their oil, everybody should bring all their oil back on. This is the challenge that we'll have. And we've seen a couple of times where oil's coming back on too quickly, inventories are building, the price starts to collapse. And I think we're going to seesaw back and forth for some time until these inventories get back in line. That sounds like the COVID-19 crisis itself, the health crisis as well, where we'll uh, be on and off for a long time. In this case, though, in the case of the oil industry, there were fundamental issues going on already, most of them centered around climate change and responses to climate change or new energy technologies that have come up that are cleaner alternatives in terms of emissions. I think you've said that this demand shock is in some ways sets us up as a warning for what electric cars might do to us over time. Is there an analogy here in in any way? I think even if you look out to the scenarios that look like, okay, in 2050, we could be at net zero and such, we still need a lot of oil. Some of the forecasts actually show something like 70 million barrels a day because we're feeding into petrochemical feedstocks, we make asphalts, we make medical supplies, all of these types of things. And often people don't realize how much goes into that and also a lot of the heavy industry. So even in that particular scenario, what we just saw was a 70 million barrel a day scenario. And some of the models show that that's what it would be like in a net neutral world high penetration of electric vehicles and those sorts of things. So yes, I actually think this is a bit of a foreshadow. It's just when you get there in weeks, it's absolute chaos. And so that's what, it's how will this play out and when 
what investments will people make going forward and then what money is getting invested in these alternate energies so that we can move forward despite all of the progress that's been made by wind and solar and and a number of these options going forward crude demands continued to increase globally and that's the part that's a huge challenge for us as a society is how do we deal with that when despite all of the efforts people have made and so clearly our journey is going to have to accelerate and we're going to have to figure out how to bend the curve on greenhouse gas emissions much faster than we've done in the past well i guess that's the point is that emissions canada has obligations it has two obligations i suppose out there to hit our paris targets by 2030 and it's now committed to a net zero future by 2050 this week, the Minister of Natural Resources, uh, Seamus O'Regan, said on a podcast that hosted by energy economist Peter Terzakian, he described net zero as a moonshot, and he said that a moonshot gives experts permission to find solutions. And when he compares it to uh, John F. Kennedy's famous moonshot speech of very early 1960s, that they would put a man on the moon in this decade, you know, that got a lot of people working at figuring out, okay, how the heck are we going to do this? So how the heck are we going to do this when it comes to this moonshot? Well, that might be an interesting example because it wasn't just working on technologies, but there was a massive redirection of the U.S. spending into actually being able to achieve it. And if I can't remember the percentage of GDP, it was one of the largest allocations of funds into a concerted effort in the history of the country, as I recall. And so one of the things that's going to have to happen, and quite frankly, I think this is one of the things that I may be encouraged about around how things have gone with COVID, because with COVID, one of the things that's really interesting is just we've realized what's essential, right? And just my hat's off to all the essential workers in our country and beyond that have cared for us through the medical system and the grocery clerks and the transportation systems and the truck drivers and all the folks, including in our own industry, energy that have kept the lights on and, and society moving forward. But we realize, okay, this is critical. And what you've seen during COVID is, look, when the chips were down and the challenge was on, you saw governments and industries and groups working, essentially all of us in society working together to try and figure this out. And how do we keep the vulnerable protected? And how do we keep this from transmitting within our society? And I think generally Canada's done a pretty good job in that. And so, and I view that this is what's gonna be required as the foundation to deal with climate is, we need to come together. And so demonizing, the oil patch and kind of blaming them for climate is kind of like, okay, so how are people are going to get around? How are we going to make steel? What does this mean for the agricultural industry? How are we going to fly planes? What will they be made of? This is a huge transformation of our society and how we live. And, and we need to do it cooperatively. It's the kind of cooperation that we've seen in COVID. And I think this is a great foundation for us to build on as we deal with this tremendous and complicated challenge. Well, let's come back in a moment to the idea of building a foundation of public confidence in, in for the oil industry and being a partner in that. But you start by pointing out that the government obviously was a major partner with the private sector in the space program. And as you're saying, we'll have to be here. Well, just paint a picture, uh, a vision, if you will, for me, of what 
what that, that future looks like. I think that when you go and think about this, Ed, we talk about net zero, right? Net zero meaning we're taking emissions and then in some cases we're offsetting them through some other means, right? And so when you look at it, we need to do things where it's not the oil that's bad, it's the emissions that are the challenge that we're trying to sort out. So we're going to have to figure out and get more deeper aligned in trying to figure out how do we keep things moving forward and drive down the emissions, carbon sequestration, carbon use. Can we capture CO2 and convert it to a usable product? Can we find new energy forms? Obviously, there's been a lot of work in wind and solar. We're an investor in wind and have been uh, for a long period of time, decades. So it's difficult to get reliable systems. And so, yes, people are doing this more in, in a more significant way. Canada is a huge hydro producer of electricity. So in some ways, we've already made massive progress in just being able to provide clean electricity. And so let me give you one of an example. For 50 years, we've burned petroleum coconuts at our base plant to be able to make steam. And so we use that steam then to produce the oil. And we realized, okay, but the future can't be the past. We need to do something different. So we ended up re-engineering that entire system so that we could put in a cogen that would make the steam using much cleaner natural gas, although it's still a hydrocarbon. But because it's cogen, we're producing the lowest greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy possible for electricity generation for a hydrocarbon-based system. We're gonna export the 800 megawatts onto the Alberta grid and allow the Alberta government to continue to progress to take their coal-based power generation and wind that down. That one investment reduces two and a half million tons a year of greenhouse gas emissions. It's like taking 550,000 cars off the road. That one investment reduces Canada's greenhouse gas emissions by 0.3%. We need, obviously, a lot of these type of opportunities. But that's where we can make progress. We're still using hydrocarbons. In fact, that's interesting because people talk about hydrogen versus hydrocarbons. Hydrogen, we're the largest producer of hydrogen, I think, in the country. I don't know that for a fact, but we're a very large producer of hydrocarbon or hydrogen. And so we're trying to find this path forward. And it means that we have to find new technologies, new solutions, new approaches. And I just think we're going to have to be a lot more aggressive in that all the way through to things like small modular nuclear. Or as you know, we're involved in some technologies where we're investing to take greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's methane or CO2, and convert it to useful products, biofuels, that could help fuel our society while driving down emissions further. These are the types of solutions we need, but obviously the pace at which these are implemented and progressed needs to accelerate. So just to stick with the cogeneration example for half a second, is that a project that is still going ahead after you you know, took the hit that everybody in this industry and in the country have taken in the economy? Is that something that you've reduced with your capital expenditure reductions, or is that something that's still going ahead? Well, I, I would say, yes, it's still going ahead. It's just we've extended the timeline because 
the financial situation. And I think it makes a good point is how do we participate in the energy transformation? It's by redeploying cash flow from our base business into the transformation. And so this is a great example. Obviously, when crude prices, when you get back into the teens for a month, there's not a lot of cash flow going on. We're spending all our time keeping the company financially strong through this, although things have improved uh, quite significantly here. So this is our number one project to get relaunched. We have investors asking about it because they just love that, okay, but this is generating good returns. It's generating good energy. It's driving down greenhouse gas emissions. There's lots of great attributes to it. But if there is no money, uh, we don't have the ability to move forward. So the vast majority, essentially, the vast majority of our money is just trying to sustain the business and get through this. And then that's the one that we want to start up again. So we've extended the timeline by two years. Maybe it'll be less than that. We're hoping it will be. And we're looking, maybe there's some creative solutions that help us to accelerate the pace of that and get it back on track for a 2023 startup. But like I said, this is one example. Will we, given what has happened to the industry, you, know, you can't do this without an industry because the industry is where all the engineering expertise and the business operating expertise exists. But are, are you going to need a different relationship with government and a different relationship with the public treasury because balance sheets have been weakened in so many companies? Well, it, it's a great question. There's been across all the industries, and I see this a little bit through the federal industry strategy council and getting a chance to participate on that is you said few industries have been impacted more than energy you know when you get into tourism and you look at the implications on tourism and hotels and airlines and such they've been impacted even more than we have many of them have lost 95 percent of their revenue and are really struggling so it's a huge challenge so Essentially, across the vast majority of industries, and I don't know what the percentage would be, but it's certainly more than half of the industries in the country, this has sent everybody for a loop. And so what you've seen is the federal government, I think they've done a pretty good job of developing a whole bunch of programs to try and care for people across the country, to try and keep industry afloat and make sure that they can last for a period of time they've worked on rent for individuals and trying to help businesses get through this whole period of time. So I would say just for the vast majority of industries across the country, the relationship between the federal government, the treasury and the industries has changed dramatically, but it's critical to our society and to our country that this come to an end. And so this balance around, okay, how can we safely move forward and get our industries moving and and get things back to normal while doing it safely it's super important that we don't reignite this covid 19 and have to send the country into another lockdown so everybody's trying to find the balance associated with that because clearly the taxpayers can't support all the industry in canada or the vast majority of industry we've uh, participated in some of the programs but the vast majority of the financing programs and stuff we haven't. We've been able to go to the markets. We've raised our own debt through this. We've done all our own financing. But some in the industry, in the oil and gas industry, haven't been able to do that. Some in lots of other industries haven't been able to do that. And so they're participating in all of the programs uh, that the federal government have been there. And we're looking for the opportunity. And, you know, hopefully in the oil patch, we'll get there fairly quickly. Although 
we've positioned our company that this goes on for a couple of years before we get back to normal. And who knows, uncertainty remains high. The, in our industry, it's very volatile. So certainly one of the things that isn't going away is pressure to address emissions and climate change. Indeed, some of the programs that we've talked about the federal government's put in place have had climate actions as conditions on them, climate plans. You know, I think you've been fairly outspoken within the oil patch as somebody that we haven't, we haven't done enough. What does the oil industry have to say to Canada, the Canadian taxpayers, Canadians and other provinces outside Alberta who are your consumers, and they seem to be happy consumers. I don't know if everybody knows that uh, you run the Petro-Canada station across the country. What do you have to do to be able to gather public confidence that the oil industry is serious about being a fighter against climate change? It's interesting when you ask me, what do I have to say? It's interesting, Ed, because I don't think anybody really cares what anybody says anymore. It's really around what are your actions? What are you doing to help move the dial? And are you going to be part of the solution or are you going to be part of the problem or are you going to ignore the problem? And so that's one of the challenges. We spend a bunch of our time obviously talking about some of the opportunities that we're pursuing and thinking through. There's lots of things we're doing, but it hasn't bent the curve, right? Like we've set a goal to reduce the intensity of our production from 2014 through to 2030 by 30%. We're on track to do that. But clearly, as we started that journey quite some time ago, and we're making great progress, a third of that has been implemented, a third of it's in execution with the Cogen project and the wind farm that we're building and such, and we still have some definition to go. But people want action, and I think it's important that we do that. There's lots of things we are doing. We just need to do more, and the message we get from people is they want us to go faster, and that is the challenge that we face. And whether it's building Canada's electric highway that we opened up in December with 50 stations across the country that allow people to drive their electric vehicle coast to coast with no more than 250 kilometers between fast charging stations, or whether it's the being involved with Enerchem, the Quebec company that's converting garbage to ethanol so that we can blend it into the gasoline pool and meet the uh, biofuels and emission standards or whether it's doing something like the Lanzatech Lanzajet, where we're literally taking CO2 out of a stack, reformulating it with hydrogen to make things like hydro-treated renewable diesel or jet fuel. These are things that are there, but this is not a huge part of our business today. <laughs> we're still trying to innovate, commercialize, those sorts of things. But I don't think there's anything an oil guy like me can say to convince folks, they actually want us to show them that we're part of the solution. And clearly we see that as part of our journey. When you use the term bend down the curve, you know, it suggests to me, and when you put in the context of your 30% uh, commitment on intensity, it suggests to me that you're also talking about absolute emissions. And I imagine that's at the end of the day, Canada's commitments are about reducing absolute emissions. With what's happened with COVID, with the production that may have grown, but will grow either, maybe it won't grow at all, maybe it will stay at present levels, maybe it will grow more slowly. It seems that there's a real opportunity to bend down that curve faster, more definitively. Would that seem right to you? Well, it's interesting because if the industry doesn't grow, every time we get an intensity reduction, it adds up as an absolute reduction. 
on the flip side of that, why has Canadian oil been growing? It's because I think when you stand back and look at ESG in whole, when you look at the environmental components, when you look at the social contribution, when you look at governance around diversity, inclusion, and human rights and such, Canadian energy stands out. There's only two countries on the surface of the earth that are democratic countries that have significant oil resource, Canada and the United States. And I think we're global leaders in ESG. Last year, we spent over $800 million with First Nations businesses. And, you know, you go back a couple of years, we did that uh, East Tank Farm deal where two First Nations, Fort Mackay First Nations and Miccosukee Cree First Nations, raised half a billion dollars and joined us as a direct participant in a blending facility. Why did they do that? Because it generates stable cash flow that funds elder care and their infrastructure and education and such within their communities. So as we go on our journey, we're working hard to figure out how do we uplift on the social side and make a deep social contribution? How do we deal with the environmental effects and especially greenhouse gas emissions? And then how do we deal with things like the inclusion and diversity and all the challenges. And so I think we have a lot to offer. Canada's resource has been growing. It will get slowed because of financial reasons, as it has over the last several years. And like you said, is we are in the process, as we're accelerating our pace, we will see uh, real emissions reductions within the industry. Well, I guess that's the point I'm trying to get at. And, and, you know, you were part of a deal in Alberta several years ago that put a cap on oil sands emissions of 100 megatons a year. Critics of that cap said that it's a pretty high level and leaves a lot of room for growth because emissions were probably around 70 million or 75 million megatons at the uh, at the time. But I guess that's a vehicle that, that does present an opportunity to say, okay, we're going to limit and we're going to start bring that down and bending. I'm rolling with your bending the curve comment and steepening the bend in that curve. So when you take all the things that you're talking about here, Mark, when you talk about the fast charging of the Petro Canada and the investment in biojet fuels and the cogen and all the various initiatives you have, when do you see absolute emissions beginning on their downward track? Well, it's a good question because it's highly dependent on what investments we move forward. We're spending a lot of time thinking through just where we're going to spend our incremental cash flow and such going forward. So as we go to 2030, our view was, is we put in, in the context of a relative goal, right? We would improve the greenhouse gas emissions per unit of oil and such as we go forward. So it was an intensity improvement. We know we have to do a lot more. We have to see absolute reductions as we go forward on this whole piece. One of the challenges with it is we don't want a commitment as you start getting in, because there's been lots of discussion in recent history about net zero. We just don't want it to be a bumper sticker. You kind of have to think about, okay, well, what does this actually mean to us? What are we going to do differently? What does it mean to our investments? How do we move forward on it versus us just saying something? And then the first question comes about, well, what does this mean? Scope one, scope two, what's your contribution on scope three? Is And no one can answer because it's the bumper sticker was the bumper sticker. So I, you know, I think this is going to be a thoughtful journey and it's a thoughtful journey that 
we're on in the way we build buildings. It's the way we travel. It's the way we farm. It's all of these different dimensions. And so a lot of this has to be done as a great cooperation across industries and governments and NGOs and entrepreneurs and technology providers and such to be able to move forward. So Canada is actually slowly reducing their emissions. It just needs to accelerate significantly as a country to be able to achieve these goals that you talked about. And that's kind of the joint challenge that we have moving forward. So that's the journey we're on and that's what we're committed to. Well, you know, obviously you can build as many fast charging stations across the country in electric highway, but people have to go buy electric cars for it to make a difference. And only fewer than 4% of new cars being purchased today are electric or hydrogen cars. So people are still 96% of the cars, 19 out of 20 cars they're purchasing are gas cars. And on average, they last 13 to 15 years. So I guess oil will be with us for a while yet for sure. It makes it, it seems even more incumbent to talk about some of the things that we're talking about here, which is how do you clean that oil? How do you, a few minutes ago, you said the point isn't the oil, the point is the emissions. How do we get the emissions out of that oil or reduced significantly in that oil toward a future that will be uh, safer for our children in terms of climate? That's the key, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it, Ed. And I don't think people realize all that's been happened because it's interesting. We talk about our oil sands industry and I think the oil sands industry gets a a lot of bashing and it's not really from a position of knowledge associated with it. If you go back as as a company, we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions 60% since 1990, the intensity of our production. So if you go back to 1990, this industry was way above the global average. And so you've seen enormous progress, not just by ourselves, but by Canadian Natural and Synovus and Imperial and Husky and all of these companies contributing significant players in the industry, driving down emissions. And so we've been on this journey for some period of time. We're the only jurisdiction that I know of, Ed, anywhere in the world where we go in and now with our new technologies, when we've done our developments, and we alter the carbon content of the barrel before we ship it to market. So for instance, our Fort Hills project, we spent $17 billion building that development. About five or $6 billion of that is actually in this new technology. It's kind of the last stage of separation for the oil as we get ready to ship it to market. And we literally extract about half the asphaltines which is primarily and predominantly carbon and put it back into the ground and we ship 90% of the oil to market. Yes, it increases our cost structure, but it not only produces lower greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy in the production phase of any of the oil sands oil that's produced, but it also delivers a barrel that has the same life cycle greenhouse gas emissions as the average barrel in the United States. Now, this isn't 100% of our industry. These are the new developments within the industry, but this is a huge step forward for us. I literally sat in a conference 18 months ago where somebody in the industry said, well, you can't alter the carbon content of the barrel. I said, well, why not? We're doing it. We're doing it today. Canada's led that innovation. So, That's one piece. And then carbon sequestration. We are not doing that directly as a company today, but you see through the Quest project and some of the projects and such we have in Edmonton, you've seen the industry 
working on carbon sequestration and making good progress there. We should be global leaders in some of these technologies as we go forward. So is the world perfect? No. Have we made great progress? Tremendous. And is the industry and ourselves as a company committed to the journey forward and doing our part to help this country achieve its goals? Absolutely. Well, maybe there's a second measure in terms of your future, your date with destiny in future. There's obviously an emissions measure, but there's also going to be a measure per barrel. Let's say that demand does go to 60 million barrels a day or 70 million barrels a day, as you said earlier. I think the lowest estimates of the International Energy Agency are about 60 or 65 million barrels a day. Presumably, the cleaner barrels and the more competitive barrels will enjoy advantage in the marketplace. So, you know, if you're at 50% of an average American barrel, I don't know how good that is out in the world, but that's got to be a target that you're trying to be in the top 50th percentile or 40 percentile or something. Do you measure yourself in that way that we're going to have clean barrels relative to the world? There's no question that when you go and look at it, and even the drive, if, if you go and compare the conversation we're having to, to what's happening in a lot of jurisdictions in the world, a lot of jurisdictions aren't talking about this issue at all. And so do we aspire to be better than the average? Absolutely. In fact, some of the folks kind of like, man, there's no way I've never in my life woken up aspiring to be average. We need to push on and make a bigger contribution and be competitive. But I just remind you though, but it's not just in carbon. What about inclusion and diversity? What about lifting, making a social contribution and helping the indigenous people of the country? You know, in my view, one of the huge strengths of the Canadian industry is looking across all of this. And so carbon is a huge piece of it. And we plan to compete on that front. But what about how we treat people and, and all these different dimensions? That's actually where Canada really shines. And often that conversation gets lost. But keep in mind, two democratic countries in the world where you have transparency, where it's okay for people to express their views and protest them. But it's one of the things that makes us sharp and continuing to progress and drive this journey forward. But we plan to be a world leader across the entire ESG component, including greenhouse gases. And I know that you've personally been very involved in ensuring that economic benefits are being shared with Indigenous communities and that they participate increasingly as commercial partners, not just workers, not just recipients, but as commercial partners. And obviously, given Canada's history, that's you know a huge consideration. I don't want to go too deeply into the Norwegian Sovereign Fund. But I do want to point out that they have chosen not to invest in a number of companies, and including Suncor. And I'm wondering if it was just them, that would be one thing. It is, they are in a special place with BlackRock. It's also saying, you know, we're going to measure you on how much climate risk there is as well. We want to make sure that we'll work with you, but we want to make sure that we are working. Is that... An important factor, those are your investment dollars, those are your international investment dollars for the whole industry. You, your cash flow is pretty strong, so it might not be as sensitive. Do you have to be more responsive or do you have to tell your story better to those international investors? I would separate that because we have a lot of investors. I think this is the point, one of the points you're making, Ed, is I think this is very important to 
the investment community and the international investment community, I would say generally you're finding out there's a lot more sensitivity in Europe than it would be in the United States and North America or Asia. But I think ESG was very important coming into COVID. I think it's going to be even more important coming out. And so when you look at companies like BlackRock or so many of the big investment houses, this is hugely important to them. They want to work with companies that are part of the solution, not part of the problem. But I think they also realize how significant energy and oil is to the global economy and such. And so they're looking for organizations that are passionate about driving solutions, finding this and helping the world solve this tremendous challenge. And I've actually seen this. It's kind of like, okay, well, coal's the problem. No, oil's the problem. Okay, wait a minute. No, it's the users of oil. Pretty soon you've crossed off pretty much every industry on the globe other than maybe tech. And so we're all for and have a lot of very passionate shareholders that are very focused on dealing with climate, but they're very focused on all aspects of ESG. And like I said, we view that we're a world leader in it. Can we do more? Yes. Will we do more? Absolutely. And they want organizations that are going to work together to be able to move things forward. I see that as very different than the conversation coming out of Norway, where it's just some comment about oil sands, it lacks the acknowledgement of some of these things. Like they, you know, I noticed there was a whole issue about us slowing down on our cogen project. And so this justified the fact that they had decided to sell out of oil sands. But I read an article and I'm not saying I fact checked this. I haven't researched. I just read an article where in Norway, they're getting tremendous pushback on wind farms going into Norway. And so they're going to slow down the pace at which they're implementing wind farms. Our issue that we have on the Cogen project is just a pace issue because we've come under tremendous financial stress because of COVID-19. It's not a philosophical issue. We love the project and look forward to moving it forward at pace. So I think it's easy for, it's an easy solution to be able to go and say, okay, well, they're to blame and let's kind of demonize them. But this is not going to solve climate. I think what's interesting perhaps about Norway is not whatever the sovereign wealth fund does in terms of its investments, but somehow Norway as a country and its citizenry have reconciled the idea that they are going to be oil exporters in the world and they are going to live as clean a life as oil producers can lean. They're going to live, they're going to promote electric cars. They are managing to both be responsive to the energy uh, situation, the climate situation in the world, while maintaining their economy as an oil producer. I suppose, you know, if there's a model, that is the model that we'd be looking at. Yeah, and I think the one thing that's helped them in a significant way is just the massive amount of money they've made from the oil industry over their history and relative to the size of the population. So they're in a very enviable position globally just with their sovereign wealth fund and the money that they've been able to generate. But I think you're right. Is like we're looking for, hey, how do we become a provider of resources and products and services to the globe while achieving net zero as a country? 
and this is the journey and aspiration that's been aspired by the federal government. And I think it's something that we all need to work on, but we're a very export driven country. And that actually makes this even more challenging. Well, that's so key, Mark. And I saw some testimony by the former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge uh, before a Senate committee recently, and he's pointing out that oil, uh, the oil industry contributes $76 billion a year to our current account or our balance of payments in Canada net. After you uh, take out the imports as well, it's a net figure, $76 billion a year. That finances a liquid part of our imports, and we will have need for even more not less because we're going to have so much more public debt in this country and some of that debt will be financed offshore. And so the pressure to increase our exports in a world uh, where it's becoming more and more challenging, uh, more protectionist world, makes it more imperative. I don't think governments are going to very quickly be able to give up on their largest industry. It will have to be transformation. That's the only, the only option, really. So look, I want to end by just asking you, as you look out on the world today, as you look at your company, as you look at Canada's place in that world and the oil industries, what's encouraging you and what's discouraging you? What do you need to see happen or to see stop happening if we're going to reconcile this climate energy equation in a manner that means that we have a strong economy and we have a safe environment? Yeah, that's a great question, Ed. And I think this is kind of almost where I started on this is just to see how when our backs are against the wall and we face a tremendous challenge like COVID. And I think if you go and look at the stats associated with it in Canada and how we've acted together and how we've helped each other and governments that may have provincial governments that may have argued are helping each other with medical supplies, <laughs> shipping things back and forth and industry helping out governments and governments helping out industries and companies and people. This is the spirit in which we can move things forward and actually achieve amazing things. And I think that this is the opportunity, a great opportunity to see us come together and figure out exactly what you said is, how do we keep this industry very, very strong, generate the cash flow to help us pay for all of the challenges and stuff we face and actually solve climate at the same time? If we do that, our industry for sure will be the best oil producer on the surface of the earth because when you go to all the other aspects of ESG, we are a global leader in inclusion and diversity. And so then you look at, so that's the opportunity on the positive side. And I would say what we need to do is build on COVID and actually take this into the spirit of cooperation to be able to move forward on this agenda. The biggest challenge is you're seeing the exact opposite globally, the geopolitical challenges that are happening around the globe, countries challenged and having huge debates with other countries, severing supply chains, putting up trade barriers. And then you see these tremendous challenges in the whole inclusion and diversity side with all the challenges that are happening we've seen in the US and beyond. And we know we have a bunch of these challenges in Canada with racism and the challenges with Black Lives Matter and the treatment of our indigenous people that have gone on literally for decades and generations. But that's the opportunity. And the issue is, is are we going to head down the path of divisiveness and blame and polarization and such? Or are we going to come together and actually take these, what seemingly are 
opposing and challenging factors and cooperate to find the path forward for us to achieve all these different ambitions. And I'm certainly one that, and I say this as an oil guy, right? Like as you started this is, I'm certainly one that stands in the realm of the possible and wants to be part of the solution. And how do we keep the industry strong and moving forward? But how do we bend the curve on emissions? How do we collaborate to come out of this with being much stronger and take the solutions that we can come up with over the next, you know, as over our journey for the next 30 years as we work towards this net zero ambition and take that to the globe? Because I'm quite confident a lot of countries are going to struggle with this. And many of them are struggling with just very basic things that we're doing better in, although we have our own challenges. That's the opportunity for us. And I think that's our journey going forward. Well, having the challenges earlier than others sometimes gets you ahead of the curve. So that may be where we are. And, you know, I like the way you describe, uh, in a sense, a Canadian way that you take a crisis like COVID and you turn it into a catalyst for, for addressing our problems. I think people have a determination not to become a polarized country and to be a solutions-oriented country. So I want to thank you for spending this time explaining a very difficult challenge that the country faces and that, that the industry faces to maintain. I don't like to think of it as a balance. I like to think of it that we you know, need to have a climate-sensitive, climate-friendly, economic-producing oil sector. And I think that's what you're dedicated to with your involvement and your leadership in the Energy Future Forum as well. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing a bit of your thinking with us as well. Thanks, Ed. So that's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking.